So today we're going to be uh, spending our time talking about the doctrine of God. And um, I was thinking about that this morning just as I was going over my notes and how strange it, it seems to have a doctrine of God. You know, like um, God is infinite and we're finite and God is eternal and, and you know, God's so much bigger than any doctrinal position that we can come up with. I totally get that. I totally understand that. But but we shouldn't be people who just bail out there and say, well, we can't put God in a box, and so we shouldn't try to put God in a box, and we shouldn't try to understand God, and we shouldn't have a doctrine of God. I think that's foolish because I think that there are certainly ways that we can say that some things about God are true and some things about God are false. Some things that people believe are right and some things that people believe and teach are wrong. And so in that sense, though, we might not be able to fully understand every single thing there is to know about God, and I don't think we can. I think that we're going to, eternally, there's going to be an unfolding and an understanding of more and more of who God is and the things that He does and the ways of God. But even though we can't fully understand or fully uh, lay out a doctrine of God, I don't think that it should stop us from trying. Because I think it's important that if we don't try, we end up with all kinds of strange things going on, and especially in a time that, that we're living in now where we live in this sort of time where, where it's becoming even more popular for people to say things. It's not new. Nothing's new under the sun. But certainly it's more popular and more accepted for people to say things like, well, all roads are leading to the same place. You know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. All gods are really one God. I, in fact, talked to an evangelist not long ago. Uh, surprisingly, somebody who preaches all over the world. And he told me a story about he was preaching in, a, in an area in Africa that was primarily Muslim, and, and he was preaching to them, and he said that his strategy was to, to help the Muslims understand that, that they believe in God and we believe in God, and so in a sense we all believe in the same God and we should start there. And I wanted to scream, and I, I didn't scream, I, we talked about it, but I wanted to say, no, that's not right. They don't believe in the same God. Just because you believe in a God doesn't, believe, doesn't mean that you believe in the right God. So we live in that time. All roads leading to the same place. All gods are, are the same God. My truth, people say my truth or your truth is valid, but really there's only one truth, right? And so we want to get to that as close as we can. Then we have also in, in times like this, uh, we have cults that are increasingly mainstream and are being accepted as mainstream and and sometimes even being called Christian. And we can think of different things like if you ask the average person, um, the average person that you come across, and maybe even the average church member, are Mormons Christian? What do you think the average person would say? I think they would say yes. But... Mormons aren't Christians. They don't even come close to believing in the God that we believe in. Mormons are Mormons. You can always ask the question, if Mormons are Christians, are Christians Mormons? And that answers the question for you because they believe in a completely different God than we do. And even though they use the Bible and they they teach things out of the Bible and they use words that that we use, they don't believe in the same God. They don't believe in the same doctrines that we do. So we have... Groups that are becoming mainstream and accepted that are cults and have different views of of God. And then we have popular teachers that reach millions of people, millions of people, 
who have views of God that the church historically has said are heretical views. Now think of this name, and I'm curious how many of you know this name. I would imagine most of you at least heard of the name T.D. Jakes. You heard of that? T.D. Jakes comes out of a background. You see his books. If you go into any bookstore or you go into any... uh, In fact, I went into Barnes & Noble the other night, not even a Christian bookstore, and the first thing I saw when I walked in was a rack of T.D. Jakes books. And T.D. Jakes has had a tremendously influential ministry, and and, and particularly with African Americans and in that culture. He's done a lot of really wonderful things in his community. The problem is that what he teaches about God is not true. It's not biblical. He teaches, and he comes out of a background of oneness Pentecostalism. Do you know what that is? It's a certain strain of Pentecostalism where they believe that God is just one God and that he's not triune in the nature that we believe he is. They believe that God is, it shows up in different modes. It's called modalism. And so God shows up as the Father in the Old Testament. When the Bible speaks about God, we have God the Father. When we have God showing up in, in Christ and walking this earth in the flesh, He's in a different mode. That God has come and He's showed up in Christ. And then we have the Holy Spirit. He's in a different mode now. He operates through the Holy Spirit. How do they get around I'm not really certain about how they do that. I don't know. There's lots of challenging things, I think, with the, um, with the whole idea of modalism. But, but that, that has historically been rejected as heresy. That's denial of the Trinity, the way that we understand it. You have guys like Todd White, who's a rising star in, in the world of evangelism and with YouTube being what it is now and people getting on YouTube and watching YouTube, in particular our young people. You have this guy, he's popular. In fact, our youth last year when we went to creation, uh, they heard him speak. I didn't know where I would have stopped them. But they went and they heard him speak at creation. They loved the guy. They loved this guy. And he's tremendously popular. The problem is that he teaches all kinds of strange things about who God is and what, how God shows up in the flesh. He taught that Jesus, when Jesus, became, uh, or when Jesus came to earth, that he wasn't God. He came as a man. He set aside all his divinity, and he just lived here as a man to give us an example of what we could do. We can live the same way that he does. And then later on, after his death and ascension, he resumed being God. That's also heresy. And so we want to find out what is our doctrine of God, and what do we want to understand, or what are the things that we say are true about God. It's really important that we do this. And it's important for us also to understand that God wants to be known. God's not a far-off God. In fact, if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 with me, I want to show you this. And There's other places in the Old Testament that we could look as well, but here's a, just a good statement about God being known or wanting to be known. Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul in Athens. And so Paul's arrived there and he's looked around. His heart's become troubled because he's looking around Athens and he's supposed to just sort of be hanging out there because everywhere that he goes, he causes trouble. Everywhere he goes, riots follow him, persecution follows him. And so they send him ahead. They send him to Athens and he's just supposed to be waiting there but he looks around at what's going on in in the city and what's going on theologically around him and all the temples and all the idols and all those things and his heart's so disturbed that he begins to speak and it says 
And verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So that these people are, are so religious, they want to make sure that they haven't missed anything. So they've got gods here and gods there and gods here and gods there and temples here and temples there. And just in case they've missed something, they, they make a temple to the unknown God. So verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So notice here as well that as Paul's talking to them about God, he's not talking in, in just vague generalities. He's teaching them about who God is and what God is like. Verse 26, And he made from every man, every nation of mankind to live, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, and that they should seek God. That's the key. Verse 27. Now, when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God didn't place them in the garden and then withdraw from them, right? I mean, they had fellowship with God in a way that that none of us have ever experienced. They had fellowship with God in the garden, and when they fell into sin, immediately after they fell into sin, who shows up in the garden? In the cool of the the evening, God shows up. walking. I mean, they're... They, so they were living in fellowship with God. They, God didn't create them and withdrawal to be an unknown God. God knew them and they knew God personally. And he, so he says here, and then again, after the fall, it's not as if God just simply withdraws. God is known all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. And he says that God has appointed times and periods and boundaries, and he says that they should seek God. So we're to seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and do what? And find him. He wants to be found. We can look in the book of Isaiah where God says that I have not spoken in secret. That he, he's not hiding himself. He wants to be found. He wants to be known. I love at the end of verse 27 where it says, And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So if you desire to find God, the Bible assures us that, that we will. So God wants to be known. That's another important thing when we talk about the doctrine of God, that that we understand that God does want to be known by us. God does want us to have a relationship with Him like we would have with someone where we know them. I mean, you can't have a relationship with somebody you don't know, right? I mean, that's sort of prerequisite to a relationship is that you know them. You have to know something about them. And so, so all that to say, all that introduction to say that this is important, that we're not trying to put God in a box, we can't put God in a box, but we do want to know the right things about God. We do want to know who He is and how we interact with Him. And so I'm going to walk through the, uh, the articles concerning God and our Baptist faith and message. I'm not writing them out for you um, because I wouldn't have enough whiteboard to do it anyway. But I'm going to read them and I'm just going to draw key things out of them for us. So listen to them and then I'm going to write some things on the board if you're a note taker. These are key things that we want to know about God and our definition, what we believe in this church about God. So here's Article 2 of the Baptist Faith and Message. We dealt with Article 1 last week on the Scripture. Here's Article 2. It's just titled God, and it says this. It says, There is one and only one living and true God, 
He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of this universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. To Him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. That's a big mouthful. But I just want to draw a few things out of that for you. When we're talking about our doctrine of God, is the first thing is that there's only one God. I mean, that should be obvious enough that we would believe that, but that's the first thing that we say that there's only one God. And then there were all those statements in there. These are the omni statements or the all statements about God that we believe that God is all powerful. We believe that God is all knowing. And here again is an interesting place where having a good understanding of a doctrine of God is important because back in the 1990s, there was this group of theologians, and one of them was a Southern Baptist seminary professor who began to teach that they believed that God didn't know anything that hasn't happened. Maybe used reason and, and philosophical reasoning and all these things to say that, that God can't know what hasn't happened, that God knows everything that is happening and that has happened, but God can't know what will happen because it hasn't happened. And they called this open theism. And one of the reasons that they came up with this idea, and one of the reasons why it, it sort of started to become popular, although it's largely just dead now, it's been squashed by the, by the church, was it because people were struggling with this idea of when bad things happen. Right? I mean, how many of you ever struggled with that? Let's be honest. There are things that happen in our life, and we say to ourselves, how could a good God allow that to happen? And one of the places where open theism almost gained a foothold was at 9-11, where these men, when the world was asking, how could a good God allow this to happen? These men were saying, we have an answer. And what they were saying was, God didn't know it would happen. Now, that's not comforting to me at all. I mean, that's just a, uh, they're, they're just trying to make excuses for, for God when really the, the answer, my answer, the biblical answer, I think, the answer that we come through in the Bible when we look at something that happens like that is not God didn't know it would happen. It's that God didn't know it would happen, and it's evidence that we live in a world just like it's described in the Bible, that we're hopelessly fallen, that sin is real that people do incredibly awful things to one another. And that's all spelled out for us in the Scriptures, that we're free, that we have the free right or the free uh, ability to make decisions, even decisions that are counter to what God would want us to do. God allows us to have free will. And so we have all of that. But I say all that to say that there are people who would say, it seems obvious to us, we say, of course he's all-powerful, of course he's all-knowing. Well, we need to affirm those things because from time to time people will come about who will say, no, God doesn't know everything. God doesn't know everything. God doesn't know what's really happened. So we say he's all-knowing, all-powerful, 
all present. God is everywhere all the time, but he is not everything. That's not pantheism, right? just means that he's present all the time. And then, in that first statement, we have an affirmation immediately of the Trinity. The Trinity. Where it says, The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. That's difficult for us to understand because we have no point of reference for it. We can do our best, but up to this point in my life, I've never, I've had some explanations that have helped. They've they've helped me get close. They've helped me to understand. But really, there's no explanation that can fully help us to understand how three distinct persons can be one person all at the same time with distinct attributes, distinct, distinct personalities, distinct roles, and yet they're still one God. So the Trinity is hard to understand, but it is scriptural, and it is in the Bible, even though the word's not there, the word Trinity's not there. I'll give you a couple of examples just real quick. In Genesis 1, for instance, if we look at the, the words in the original Hebrew, when Moses writes Genesis 1 and he says, in the beginning, God, and then all throughout Genesis 1, he uses the word God. God did this, and God created, and God said that it was good. And he's using a word there in the Hebrew, Elohim. And this little suffix at the end, the I am, makes this plural. There's the root for God, L, and then that makes it plural. And so when we have the word God in that first chapter, and then all throughout in other places in the scriptures, many times we have the word Elohim, which just is a word for God, just God, but it's a plural word. That's helpful. Then we get even more explicit when we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, when God creates man, says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over creeping thing that's on the earth. In verse 27, And so God created man in his own image. And so you have this sort of back and forth language where you have God speaking within the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. Let us make him in our likeness. And so he's talking within the Godhead and we're told even in the New Testament, that, that Jesus, for instance, all things were created through Him and for Him. And then we have, also in Genesis 1, we have the voice of God, but we also have the Spirit of God hovering over uh, creation. So we have all of these things that teach us or sort of allude to the, uh, the triune nature of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, when Jesus is being baptized, this is a good, a good place for us to... to draw some understanding or or some evidence for the Trinity. In verse 16, it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what's going on there in those verses? You have Jesus standing in the water, looking up, seeing the Spirit of God descending on him, and then you have the Father at the same time speaking to the Son. So you have all three present in one place 
in one time. So the Trinity. So we start there. He's one God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and he's triune in nature. And then we get to uh, these division, these statements about each uh, person of the Godhead. So here's God the Father. This is what our Baptist faith message says. It says, God as Father reigns with providential care over his universe, his creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purposes of his grace. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-wise. God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is fatherly in his attitude towards all men. So we have the God the Father seated in heaven in, in, sense, in terms of their roles. God as Father is playing the role of sovereign, reigning with providential care over all of his people. Then we have God the Son. And this is the next um, letter under Article 2 is God the Son. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In His incarnation as Jesus Christ, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon Himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying Himself completely with mankind yet without sin. He honored the divine law by His personal obedience and in His substitutionary death on the cross, he made provisions for the redemption of men from sin. Just hang on with me. We're going to look at individual things in here. This is a long one. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate His redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as a living and ever-present Lord. So that is a mouthful. All right. So let's talk about some specific things. So first, He's eternally God. Jesus is eternally God. And here we come again to... Things I mentioned earlier, like, for instance, this guy, Todd White, and he's not alone in this. There are a lot of people, particularly in charismatic circles, who have a similar uh, teaching that, that Jesus set aside his deity for the portion of time that he was on earth. And so, in a sense, he broke the stream. He's no longer eternally God. He was God before, and he was God after, but he was not God while he was on the earth. And that's wrong. We're, we're, we're not taught that anywhere in the scriptures. Again, I, I use the Mormons as examples because they probably have the most developed theology of any of the cults. But for instance, the Mormons believe that Jesus was not eternally God, that Jesus was actually the firstborn of God the Father. So they have this interesting Satan's brother. Satan's is Satan's the second born. Right. And and then we all sort of follow in that stream. That we were all spirit children. Uh, this is the way that Mormon theology works. God the Father was not eternally God either. In fact, one of the ways that they say this and teach this is that they would say, as God uh, or as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. That's one of the things that they teach. Yeah. That's what they teach. So they teach that, that God the Father was once a man living on another earth who pleased his God. 
and he was exalted to godhood with his wife. This is, again, why you need to understand all the things that go on at the temple down there on 495. This all has to do with them repeating this process. So he and his wife ascended to godhood and began having spiritual children in, in, at where, where they are. Jesus was first, Satan or Lucifer was second, and then everybody else followed that, and then he created his own world and then sent his spirit children to live here. And, and the one who would be the redeemer, when it came time for him to choose, he chose Jesus. Satan got mad because he, didn't get, he, didn't, he wasn't the one who was chosen, and he rebelled against God and the rest, so they say, is history. But the idea is then that, that Jesus was not eternally God. He only became God after satisfying the will of the Father on earth through His redemptive work. And then He ascended into Godhood. So again, it's important that we, when we say Jesus is eternally God, that's important. That's a big thing. In fact, we would believe that we see Jesus appearing in the Old Testament in various ways, that we see Him showing up when we see passages that talk about the angel of the Lord speaking to different people, showing up in the flesh, we have the pre-incarnate Christ there in the Old Testament and all over the Old Testament. So he's eternally God. He's virgin born. That's important, right? Because this allows Jesus to be sinless. Because our sin nature is inherited, right? You and I, every one of us, inherits our sin nature. And where do we inherit it from? You inherit it from your father. It comes through the male line. And each of us who's born with an earthly father inherits the sin nature of Adam. Jesus had an earthly mother, but a heavenly father. And so in that sense, he did not inherit that sin nature. And so although he was able to be tempted, and he, the Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. So he's uh, virgin born, he's sinless, he lived, died, was buried, was raised, and ascended into heaven. These are all important as well, because some people will say that Jesus lived, and that he died, and that he was buried, but that he wasn't really raised. It was just this, the things that he taught that were resurrected in the teaching of the apostles, things like that. Some people take some of these and not the others, but we, we want to take them all. And we say that he's fully God and fully man. He is God, really, and man, really. So he's not like when I was a kid, I had a view of Jesus that he was like Superman. That was my view of Jesus, that he was a man, but he was the God-man. And so when they nailed him to the cross, he may have acted like it hurt, but it couldn't have hurt because he's God. How could they hurt God? That's wrong. In his human nature, and he's fully man, it hurt when he was nailed to the cross. It hurt when he had crown of thorns put into his head. We have instances where it says that Jesus was hungry, hungry, where, where he was thirsty, where he asked for a drink. We have all of these different places where we see his humanity show up, but then we also have places where we see his divinity show up. Like, for instance, when he, he's in the house and he's preaching and they lower the man down through the uh, roof and he says, son, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees are grumbling in their hearts about why he would forgive, and he perceives 
that they're grumbling in his heart or in their hearts. He knows, the Bible says that he knows the heart of men. In John chapter 2, or at the end of John chapter 1, I can't remember, it says that he knew what was in the hearts of men. And so he would not, uh, he, he would not uh, bind himself to them. So he knew things because of his deity, but he also felt things in his humanity. He's fully God and fully man. That's another important thing. He will return. We believe that Jesus will absolutely return and that he will judge. That when he comes again, he came first as a savior. He's coming again as our judge. And again, these things are not, not just academic. We need to know God. We need to know who he is in order to be able to have a relationship with him. All right, third, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit says this in our, in our statement of faith. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, He enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, He baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He culminates Christian or cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through His church. He seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. All right, so a couple of things there. Number one, he is God, not a power. Now, is the Holy Spirit powerful? Absolutely, he's God. When I say I wrote that there because it's important because we have a, 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 a very prevalent understanding of the Holy Spirit is that he's just sort of a power source. You know, that the Holy Spirit just empowers us or gets inside of us and does things or shows up and things happen and that he's sort of this impersonal power that, that we can get sort of zapped by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you've seen people slain by the Spirit where you get somebody, here, Terry, you want to demonstrate? And, <laughs> yeah, but you get somebody, you know, like, like, uh, like Benny Hinn, for instance. Benny Hinn's famous for this. He'll line people up and he'll do things where he'll like zap them with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and they all fall out. Yeah, and they all, he's done it to whole stadiums of people. You get on YouTube. Don't, don't waste your time doing this, but you have nothing, absolutely nothing better to do in the world. You can get on YouTube and see him do this to thousands of people at once where he'll throw the Holy Spirit at them and they'll all fall down, all just collapse all through the stadium. And they're just treating the Holy Spirit as a power, as some sort of uh, source of power, but not as a person, not as God. And we need to understand that He is God. As much as Jesus is God, as much as the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So we believe that He is God, that He inspired the Bible. We talked about that last week, the inspiration of the the scriptures. We also believe that not only did he inspire the Bible, but that he 
illuminates the Bible. What's that mean? None of us are Bible writers, but I hope that we're Bible readers. And the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the Scriptures for us. He's the one who helps us to understand the Scriptures and the meaning of the Scriptures. He dwells in the believer. Jesus said that after He would return to the Father, He would send a helper. He would send the Holy Spirit who would dwell in us. He also seals the believer. He is the earnest money. You remember that from a few weeks ago when we talked about that on Sunday morning? That He's the, the guarantee, the down payment on our salvation. And that if God doesn't follow through, and this is according to Ephesians 1.14, if God doesn't complete what He started in us, then He, according to the Scriptures, would have to forfeit the Holy Spirit, which means that He would no longer be God because the Trinity would be dismantled and the entire universe would essentially dissolve immediately. So if you ever want to know, can I lose my salvation, that's enough to know that if you're truly saved, you're always saved, you can never be lost because it's the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee, and He empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers us for worship, for witness, and for service in the church, in and through the church.